Uh, good morning. Oh, okay. All right. It's morning. It's Sunday. You're at church, either here online. Listen. Good morning. Oh, there you are. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Fred. Uh, I get to be the lead pastor here, and I am really excited you're here. And listen, every uh, week um, I pray. Uh, and ask God to, to let us be a different people leaving this place than we were walking in, that we have more faith and trust in Jesus than we did when we came in. And in particular, as the sermon kind of marinates and as I think through what um, God is speaking to us, it also leads my prayers into something specific. And, and specifically today, I hope we leave here uh, seeing something new in the heart of God particularly uh, just how generous God is to us. Um, that he's not a stingy God, that he's not a mean God, he's not an angry God. He is a generous, loving, as that song reminds us, merciful God. And so with that, go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 132. And I want to, as you're turning there, kind of tell you a story. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever gotten a present and been blown in how awesome it is? Like, has someone ever gotten something for you and you've been like, how did you find this? Where did you get this? This is perfect. Well, keep that feeling in mind because uh, during the Christmas season... We like to partner with an organization called Christmas is for Kids. And, and, and what they do is they provide presents for kids that are in foster care, um, which isn't unique. A lot, of, a lot of places do that. Like Amy was talking about the Black Mountain Home for Children. Like, like there are lots of organizations that do that. What makes this one really unique, though, is that they ask the kids to uh, write down one present that they want. What is the one thing that they want? And then this organization recruits volunteers, and they move mountains if possible. They will drive to the other side of the state to get the present if needed, so that on Christmas morning, these kids have something specific that they ask for. One time, as we started this partnership with them, I got to be on the radio because there's this DJ that... that that helps run it. And so he said, Fred, come on and, and talk about the church's partnership with it. So I sat down and, and uh, there was this young man, he was probably 19, 20 years old uh, with his foster mom and they were leaving as I was coming in. And, and both Kipper and Tammy were just a mess in tears. And I was like, what happened? And they were like, just listen. And they hit play on this guy's story. And this guy, I may get emotional to talk about it because it gets me every single time. And if you listen to the convo cast with Kipper, you'll hear it there. But, but this kid, 19, 20 years old, talked about when he was younger and he was a young teenager. And he was in the foster care system and he had gone from home to home to home and was abandoned and rejected on levels that would horrify us. Everyone in his life left him. Those that he loved and those that he didn't even like had left him. And he said, because of that, he said, I, I really gave up on humanity. He said, I couldn't see how in the world it was possible for humans to even have an ounce of kindness in them because I had never experienced it. Everyone had left. Well, he moved into this new foster family 
And uh, they had heard about Christmases for kids, and so his new foster mom encouraged him to, to fill out this little form about something that he wanted. And he says, he's like, I didn't want to because I knew nobody cared. I mean, if somebody cared, somebody would have cared at some point in my life. There's no way a stranger is going to care for me. But he filled out the card mostly because he said his foster mom made him fill it out. And he was a skater, like on a skateboard skater. And he said, there is this one pair of shoes that I wanted. A specific style and size and color of Vans. He had always worn kind of knockoffs from Walmart. And he said, you know, the problem with a knockoff is that you're on a skateboard and all of a sudden you just blow that thing out and it's gone, right? And he said, so he would go through these shoes and he wanted this one pair of shoes. Well, Chris, so he put it on the, on the he filled out the card assuming he would get another pair of knockoffs, right? Well, Christmas morning comes, and he gets this box, and it's bigger than a pair of shoes, and he's like, I knew it. Like, I, he said, I'm, it's not that I'm not thankful for what's in the box, but it's obviously not what I asked for because it's bigger. You know, if you're familiar with Vans, that's a pretty small box, and this one was bigger. And so Christmas morning came, and he said, and I opened it, and he goes, and what was inside? blew me away. And this is where Kipper and Tammy and I are just a mess. And he goes, he said, it wasn't one pair of shoes, it was two of the exact size, the exact color, and the exact, you know, it was it, two pairs. Because whoever it was knew that one pair would last for a certain time and then another pair would eventually give out. And he goes, what that one present did is it restored my faith in humanity. That somebody who I didn't even know, somebody who, 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 who I will never meet, loved me enough to get me not just one, but two of the exact same things that I asked for. Y'all, that is our God. And that is what he does. And I practiced this without getting emotional, and I knew this would happen. <laughs> now I can't see. Son of David, have mercy on me. Ah. But y'all, that's, that's our God's heart, right? That he gives us more than we ask for. That our God really, really is a more than we ask for kind of God. And listen, I know some of you have been asking God for something for so long and it hasn't happened. And I get that. And I'm going to address that. But as we go into this this sermon, I want us to, to realize that our God really does give us great presence, right? Now, the trick with a sermon like this is that it can sound like the prosperity gospel, right? And if you're not familiar with the prosperity gospel, the prosperity gospel is that if we ask God for something, he's going to give it to us, right? And even if we don't ask God for something, if we live in, in right relationship with him, we get more and we get better and we get good, right? We get, the, we get more money, we get better health, we get a higher paying job, we get a nicer home. That's what the prosperity gospel is. In some ways, it's like a country song in reverse, right? You ever heard a sad country song and they lose everything? It's like that in reverse. You get your dog back, your girlfriend back, your money back, your truck back, like you get it all. That's the prosperity gospel, right? Sorry, I have to laugh to move on. Um, but, but that kind of thinking isn't the way God works. That prosperity gospel isn't the way God works. And I think all of us can attest to that, right? 
We know what it's like to suffer. We know what it's like to grieve. And if God just gave us everything we asked for, we wouldn't ask for those things. Because God is different. That prosperity gospel is heresy. But here's the rub. I think there's a functional prosperity gospel in each of us. Particularly when we don't get what we ask God for. And the way to know is in those places we doubt God. Right? We think that we've done something wrong and we must do more right and more better and, 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 and to, to get God to notice us and to give us what we want. We think that we sometimes have to do the work for God because he's not doing it. But church, listen to me. What if there is a better way? What if there is another way? What if God has a present for you that you couldn't even possibly ask for if you knew? Well, in Psalm 132, let's, let's go through this. I think it's the longest of the Psalms of Ascent, and so we're going we're gonna to take it in chunks. Let me read uh, the first five, five verses. Psalm 132 says this. It says, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or, or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids. Until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. And I remember we're in this series called Coming Home on the Psalms of Ascent. And it's the songbook, the playlist of the nation of Israel as they traveled from the place they lived to the place they called home, Jer- Jerusalem. And specifically as they went to worship in the temple of Jerusalem. Right? It's why we have these chairs up here on the stage. They represent those people who we are praying for that are on this journey from the place they live to the place that, that we call home, heaven. They represent them. They represent us. They're, they're there to remind us that we are all on this journey from the place we live to the place we call home. And we want others to be in that journey with us in Jesus. Well, last week, if you were here, watched, or listened Online, you got to hear Matt uh, tell this really uh, cool account of how David became king, and it's a story of, of David's humility. Well, what I want to do is I want to show you a little bit of backstory to this psalm, and, and where Matt showed us King David's humility and where that came from last week, what we're going to see is David's heart for worship. And so leave your finger right there on Psalm 132 and, and turn to the left to, to 2 Samuel. Right, and Second Samuel is, is one of the history books of the uh, Old Testament, and in particular, it's the account of, of King David's reign. And look at chapter six through seven is where we're going to be. Right, because we're going to see something important here that involves the Ark of God or the Ark of the Covenant. Right, and if you're familiar uh, with your Old Testament, you know what this will look like. Uh, if you're if you've seen Indiana Jones. Right? Uh, then you might be familiar with what it looks like as well. Uh, it, it's this box that the nation of Israel would carry on two poles because they couldn't touch the box itself. And on the top of it, it had these two angels seated on top. It looks something like this. If we have a slide of that, I think we do. Yeah, it looks something like this. And, and uh, they would carry it. Now, here's the deal. This, this ark of God, inside of it, there was, uh, the book of Hebrews tells us that there was a pot of manna. I would love to see that. I have no idea what, was, what that stuff looked like, but I'd be so curious. There was Aaron's staff that was budded, right? And so it was, it was uh, budded with almond flowers and almond fruit. And then there were the tablets of the covenant. 
right? The, 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 the Ten Commandments, the law. But whenever the nation of Israel saw the ark of God, whenever they saw the ark of this covenant, it would bring something specific to mind. And it's this. It would bring the fact that God is present with his people. When they saw that box being carried, and when they saw that, that ark of God in the temple or in the tabernacle, it was to remind them that God is present with us, right? It was, it was considered the place where, where God would sit, right? It was like his throne, his presence was there. And what was in that box was important too because it just showed that God was present to provide for their needs. That's what the manna is. That God is present to lead them. That's what Aaron's staff is, right? And you had the, the tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, that God was present in their worship. And so anytime they saw this ark, they would be reminded that our God is present with us. And in a world and a culture where gods were far off and they were fickle, this made Israel very unique, that God is present with us. Well, that ark went missing for a little while. And when it came back into Jerusalem, into its place of worship, when it was returned, we see this. In 2 Samuel 6, verses 12 through 15, it says this. And it was told, King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom, And all that belongs to him because the ark of God. Because that's where it was for a little bit. And so David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of horn. Now that is Old Testament Hebrew for a party. Right? Like there was this party because the ark was coming from Obed-Edom's house. And it was with the Philistines before that. And it was coming back into its place where it belonged. It was coming back into the tabernacle. It was, it was, it was this picture that the whole nation is worshiping God because God is present again. Like, like his presence is now visible. And, you know, God never left the nation of Israel. But now this physical reminder and this physical marker of God's presence was being there. And the place burst out into this holy party, right? But at this point in Israel's history, there wasn't a permanent place for them to worship. They were still worshiping in a tent. They were still worshiping in the tabernacle. And so as this ark moves into that place, David has this epiphany. He sees the ark sitting in a tent and he goes, hmm, turn with me to chapter 7. So jump ahead to chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. It says, now when the king of Israel lived in his house, so David's got a nice place, And the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Right? And so here's what David's doing. He's he's had this, this great worship experience. The whole nation through this party, God's presence, the visible picture of God's presence is back with his people, and it's in this tent. Hmm. A tent. Really? A tent. And he turns and he looks at his house and he's like, I'm living in this nice place. And God's got a tent. 
Let's fix that, right? And so, so, so what he does is, is when he sees God, the presence of God hanging out of a tent, and this seems out of balance, Psalm 132 shows us David makes this declaration before God. Right? He wanted to make things better. He wanted to give God a house. He wanted to do right by God because God had done so right by him. There's peace in the land and, and he had this place to live. The nation is living in the promises of God. They're back in the promised land. And so he wanted to do right by God because God had done so right by him. And so let me ask you, have you ever made these type of declarations to God? Declarations based on the goodness of God to do something good for God. Right? For example, you know, tithing. Oftentimes we make declarations for God based on the goodness of God. Right? And we say, man, God's been so good to me, I want to give. That's what Amy talked about. That's definitely one of the motivations to give. But it's not the only motivation, right? Because faith is grown in tithing too when you barely have enough to get by. See, but these type prayers, they're powerful prayers. And I think they're very tender to God's heart that we, we experience God's goodness and we want others to experience it too. But remember, our God is a more than we ask for God, right? So watch this, verse 3, chapter 7, verse 3. Uh, yeah, wait, yeah, verse 3. It says this. It says, And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. I love this passage because, because David asked this prophet a question. I, do I build the, do I do this? Do I take a step toward this? And Nathan is like, you know what? Do what you want. God will direct your steps. You have this relationship with God. Rely on that. If he's telling you to take this step and it's the wrong step, he'll tell you when you take it. There are lots of times people sit in my office with, for counsel and, and they're like, man, I've got these great decisions and I don't know what to do. And I said, well, uh, let me ask you this very important question. What do you want to do? Oh. I was like waiting for a sign from God. And I'm like, well, this is it. What do you want to do? I want to do this. All right, listen. I know your heart for God. You're not doing either of these things out of rebellion to him. You're doing them out of a way to honor him. Take a step and see what happens. He'll tell you if it's the right step or not. Well, that's what God tells Nathan to do. But that same night, look at verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go tell my servant David, this is, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought my people from Israel, from, uh, of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent from my dwelling. In all the places where I moved, in all the people with, with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of them, of any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So Nathan gets this vision in the middle of the night. He just told David, do what you want. Take this step and let's see what happens. Well, Nathan goes to sleep and God wakes him up and says, hold up. It's fine. But let me give you a little perspective, right? You see, sometimes we make these declarations before God and they're from really good places. And even surrounded by really good counsel, but they aren't what God needs for us. They aren't what God needs from us. Remember last week when Matt showed us this, this account of, of David's 
life. And there was this season in David's life where Samuel the prophet came to him and said, guess what? You're the king of Israel. You're the next king of Israel. But there's another king sitting on the throne. So David had to wait. And we see like David's impatience during that time, right? Like he would sneak up on Saul and he would steal things from Saul just to show like, I'm the real king and you're not. And yet God convicted him of those things, right? God showed David that he didn't need David to fight this battle for him. All David had to do was just trust that God would put him in the throne at the right time. All David had to do was to let God be God. All David needed to do was to let God be the one who fulfilled the promises. You see, something for us to consider is sometimes our prayers are more about us doing are more about us doing God's work than letting God work, right? And I think those prayers in particular are prayers where God has something more for us, right? Because here's how you can know. Anybody ever get impatient praying for something? Yeah, you know, you've got, this, you've got this, this parable that Jesus told about the persistent widow and that keeps bouncing around in your head and you're like, I'm, I'm just gonna keep asking right? That's good, and that's holy. That's why Jesus talked about it. But do you ever notice, too, like you get to a point where you begin to doubt God? Is he really good? Does he even hear me? Has my whole life, my whole life been a lie? Does Jesus even exist? Is Jesus even real? Like, those are places that I want us to hone in on today. Because when, when, when those are where our prayers lead us, sometimes it makes us feel alone, right? And we want to do for ourselves what God isn't doing for us and with us. But hear me, church, hear me. We have a more than we ask for God, even when we're not getting what we ask for. And that's the place in your life I want you to tune in with me. Because God has something more to tell David. You see, if, if, if Nathan's vision, if Nathan's, Nathan's word for, for David stopped right here, God would just be this convicting, chastising, punishing God. Because where I stopped, God just said, did I ever ask you for a house? But that's not the end of the story. Look, listen to the rest of this in verse 8. It says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place For my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. And from that time I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, David. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he, notice he, shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son 
when, when he commits iniquity, I will dis- discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of his sons of men. But my steadfast love, I will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put, a- put away before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so when Nathan tells this prophet, he says, he says, David, listen to me. I'm going to build you a house. Now, here's what's, what's interesting. Here's what you have to understand about prophets of the Old Testament. Sometimes they give prophecies, and there's two things that they're seeing at the same time, and they look like one, right? Have you ever noticed that? Like, like, like even these mountains behind us, some of them look like they're right on top of the other until you get on the top of one mountain, and then what do you see? That other mountain is miles and miles and miles away. And so this prophecy of David is looking at two things. It's looking at human kings that will come after David. But then it's also looking at this future king and kingdom that will come, that will establish his throne forever. Right? And so you see both of these at the same time. Now, the, 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 the New Testament reveals that, which we'll get to, because we see Jesus is that ultimate fulfillment. But we also see there are these other kings that are in this picture too. But to David, here's what's interesting. He wanted to build God a house. And God says, David, I'm going to do something better for you. I know you want to build me a house and your son will do that. But what I'm going to give you instead is a royal line, a household that will continue on forever. And one that won't fade away. And what we'll see is that Jesus is that royal line of David, and in him, and only him, do these words come true. Now, turn with me back to Psalm 132. Little John, all right, so so does those words of David, Psalm 132, make a little more sense, right? David made this declaration before God to, to, to build this temple, and it was based on the goodness of God. 132 verse 6 says this, Behold, we heard of it in Epitaph, and we found it in the fields of Jair. That's, that's where the, the, the ark of God was somewhere else, and they brought it in. Verse 7 through 8 says this, And let us go to his dwelling place, and let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you, um, you and the ark of your might. So the nation of Israel, Israel, right, they're singing this song as they travel from the place they live, wherever that is in the nation, or even beyond the nation, coming to Israel, and they're singing this song, Right? Traveling from the place they live to the place they call home, Jerusalem, and, and, and the temple in Jerusalem. And there, at this time, like they will worship at a temple. The temple's been built. Solomon built it, built it. And it was this good, beautiful temple showing off the blessings of God and the beauty of God. I was in Moscow decades ago. Wouldn't want to be there right now, Right? But I was there decades ago helping to start churches that are there, which are so cool, right? And when we were in Moscow, you see this beautiful St. Basil's Cathedral, right? It looks like the ice cream cones. And I asked, I asked our, our interpreter, I said, why, why with all the poverty in Russia that has always been in Russia, except for this time of the czars, but the people still were, why would they spend so much money building this? And she said, well, the church is the bride of Christ, And brides look really pretty on their wedding day. And that's what this represents, is it represents the bride. All right. Right? Solomon's temple did the same thing. 
It was to, it was to show the goodness of God. And, and as the people of Israel would come to, the, to, to, to Jerusalem and come to the, to, the, to the city, that temple was sitting on the top of the hill and they would see it in the distance. And it was to remind them of David's passion for God and David's passion for worship and to, to encourage them to have the same thing, to ignite their own passion for God. Why? Because the ark of God sat in that temple. As they walked up, that was the place like God's presence is here. It's this, this, this place is to remind us that we are God's people and his presence is with us. And so much so that as you sing this song, you get a, pr- a prayer in verse 9. It says, in response to seeing this place, let your, let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. And do not turn, a, turn away the face of your anointed one. In other words, let the priests do what's right and let the people have joy and let future kings serve you. Right? Like, God, if you are here, let us act like it. Right? Let us be a people of joy. Let us be a people of righteousness and let that carry on for the generations, which again is this good prayer based in the goodness of God. Right? They pray for people to perform a certain way. But God gives them a promise to believe. Look at verse 11. And the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on a throne. Right? So now the psalmist is going to take those words that Nathan spoke to David and he's going to divide them up. And we're going to see those two mountaintops. And he's going to say, one of your servants will serve on the throne forever. Right? Because remember that promise back in, in 2 Samuel that there was this promise that David's throne would extend forever. Matthew, a New Testament writer who's like, Man, his, he really wanted you to know that Jesus is who Jesus is. And he did all this genealogy work, right? And, and Matthew 1.1 says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David. And Matthew wants you to know that this Jesus that he's going to talk about is the one that fulfills this prophecy spoken in 2 Samuel, sung about through the nation. That when we see Jesus, we see the fulfillment of this verse. You see, this is what I hope that we get to believe today is this, that in Jesus we get more than we ask for. That just like they looked at the ark and they saw the presence of God, we look at Jesus and we get to be in God's presence. Right? David wanted to build a temple and God gave him an eternal heritage. The people wanted to honor God with their actions and instead he gives them hope and a coming Messiah. The people prayed for a righteous king to sit on the throne and what God gives them is a king of their heart. Right? You see, search, the same is true for us. The things that our hearts long for, the thing that you've been praying for, the thing that causes you to doubt the goodness of God, even those good things based on the goodness of God, those things all find their fulfillment in one place, in Jesus. Hold on to this thought. Let's look at verse 12, because we've got to pick up the pace here. My goodness. All right, verse 12. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, and their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. So we see this eternal throne and then this if throne, right? If 
your servants do this, then they will be on the throne. Now we know the kingdom of Israel didn't always obey God. And because of that, that's why there is no king of Israel. Right? And, and why if you follow the history of Israel, there is a, a long, long time where, where they didn't have kings. Right? But Jesus has this eternal place on the throne. He, his throne uh, this throne is for human kings, but, but we see that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that throne. They didn't obey, but Jesus does. Jesus did. All right, now the last section. Psalm 13, for the Lord has chosen Zion, and he has desired it for his dwelling place. All right, so what did the ark of God represent? God's presence, right? That's what, we, that's what we see. That's what it pictures. And what God does is he chooses his dwelling place. And he chooses the place where his presence will be experienced. Now look at what he does in the place where he dwells for. We're going to go through these last sections of verses. And y'all, I'm going to give you a cheesy warning. But uh, there is this little preacher in me that comes out every once in a while. Likes rhymes, likes analogies. So just bear with me. Because what we're going to do in these last few verses is we're going to do this. We're going to see the <clears throat> presence of God's presence. See what I did there? Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I gave you the cheese alert before, right? But here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read through these last verses because what this psalmist does is he says, y'all, listen, we're about to go into the presence of God. And when we step into the presence of God fully, expecting God's presence there, we get to experience things that we don't experience outside of the presence of God, right? And, and, and as I read this, I want you to listen to your own soul. Right? What words out of this do you need? And then I'm going to ask you just to shout them back out to me when I'm done. And I'm going to give you the response. Even those of you who are online, you can, you can write out. And, and uh, who's, who's our online host today? Scott, are you online? Who, who, who's on, whoever's online, if you see people comment, let me know. All right? All right, so, so here's the deal. Listen for what stands out for you, and I'm going to ask for a response. Verse 14 says this. I'm going to read verses 14 through 18. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priest I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make David a horn, I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Now, as I read that, you know, it talks about provisions and, and need. It talks about joy. It talks about enemies being shamed and taken care of, right? What stands out to you? Did any of that, like, touch a part of your soul? Just give me a word or a phrase from there that jumped out at you. Sing for joy. Thank you, John. And whoever's online, if somebody commented, just, just read it out. Resting place. Ooh, that's good, Trish. Anybody need some rest these days? God, what jumped out at you? No temptations. Thank you. Satisfy. Yeah. Satisfy the poor with bread. Provisions. 
Yes. Any from online? Okay. Online, wake up. <laughs> we'll wait for you. Just shout it out whenever. You'll see, here's, here's, I know there are people like watching the TV right now going, I can't respond, it's on the TV. It's fine, it's fine, it's fine, just email me, right? Y'all, but listen to this. Here's where Jesus is more than we ask for because these words, these phrases which jumped out to you are all these words of relationship with God, right? You see, the nation of Israel had to travel from the place they lived to the place they call home to, to receive like the full-on benefits of the presence of, the, of, of God. But here's the deal. God gives us something better in Jesus, right? I'm going to put some verses up on the screen from another gospel, the gospel of John. And it says this, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God, and all these things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, right? Can we all agree this is about Jesus, right? Well, if you jump down to verse 14, John says this. And he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, he used this word particularly because the word that he used is tabernacled, which means Jesus became flesh and tabernacled with us. Eugene Peterson in the message says that Jesus moved into our neighborhood, right? And the neighborhood is your soul, right? In Jesus in Jesus, we experience God's presence. The ark pictured it, right? Sometimes it's called the footstool of God because they knew the ark wasn't God, but we know that Jesus is God and that God is Jesus. And in Jesus, we get to experience the true and full presence. And here's the best part, y'all. We don't have to go to Jerusalem to do it. We don't have to come to a place to do it because Jesus is everywhere. And we can experience the fullness of him by simply saying yes to him. We get to rest in Jesus. Now, um, typically I don't like to do this because um, I manuscript my sermon every week. Because when I go off script, I say stupid stuff. But, um, no, it's true. <laughs> it's true. But there's been something that's kind of been bubbling around in my soul that, that I want to do the ending just a little bit different. And I know we've gone long, so I apologize. But bear with me for a minute, because I think this is crucial. Like, like we, we've talked about sitting in the chair, right, to, to rest with God. And I know some of you can't see me, but hey. Um, um, we, we've talked about this, right? And that we need to sit in this chair. But, but let me ask you something. Have you ever noticed, because that's completely true, but um, have you ever noticed if you're used to driving your car, do you know where the scariest place to sit is? Amen, y'all do know, the passenger seat, right? Because you're used to being in control, and when you're in the passenger seat, like, the curb looks closer, doesn't it? The red lights turn earlier, don't they? Like cars break a whole lot more suddenly in front of you, right? Like you, when you sit in the passenger seat, you don't have control. And, and here's the deal. Like when we say yes to Jesus, what we're saying is, is we're letting Jesus, another cheese alert, you know what I'm about to say, right? 
Like, 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 that's what we're doing. But here's the scary part. If Jesus is sitting over there, that means I'm sitting here in the passenger seat. Now, I'm not going to ask how you behave in the passenger seat. But I'm going to tell you what happens to me. Is I start making comments. Right? And, and I think I was talking to Matt about this earlier this week, about how this is the scariest place to be, is in the passenger seat. And y'all, when we're on this journey from the place we live to the place we call home, when we get to experience Jesus, guess where we are? This seat isn't the cockpit. It's the passenger seat. Right? Because Jesus is the one that's driving. And here's what we do when we pray. And this is where it ties back together. Have you ever been sitting here in one, like, all of a sudden there's a break over here, right? There's not. But you start acting like it, right? And you start making, oh, whoa, that, that curb is close. Right? And, and you need to go to the south side of town, and you're like, oh, it's 4.30. Let's not go down 26. You start telling the driver what to do. Right? Let's not go down Sweeten Creek either. That'll be worse. Let's just take the long way. 74 to Cane Creek. Let's go through Fairview. It'll be longer, but we'll get there faster, and it's a prettier drive. Let's just do that. Right? And you start telling things. You don't let the driver be the driver. See, some of our prayers are telling Jesus how to drive right? Some of our prayers are trying to, to, to take that seat back over again. Not all of them. Some of them, God gives us a true conviction to pray for something for a long time. But sometimes we start telling God how to drive. Anybody do that? Here's the question to ask, and this is what I'm going to close with as we pray. What if in those times, the question to ask isn't isn't to tell Jesus how to drive, but the question to ask is, what kind of passenger am I? Am I anxious right now? Well, son of David, have mercy on me. Right? Am I scared right now? Ooh, son of David, have mercy on me. What kind of passenger am I? So as we go into this time of prayer, that's the question I want you to ask. What kind of passenger are you? And I'm going to lead us for just a minute to, to pay attention to those places where we've been asking God to do something specific. And maybe, just maybe, instead of telling God how to drive, we need to surrender and let him drive. And deal with what it's like to be a passenger. Because that's what God's presence feels like a lot of times. So let's do that. Jesus, um, you are in control. And when we say yes to you, we give you control of our lives. And for those of you who, if, if anybody's listening that hasn't said yes to Jesus, that hasn't relinquished that control of their life, and they're still sitting in that, in that cockpit, they're still sitting in that driver's seat, may they willingly move over and let Jesus drive. And Jesus says, we're sitting here in this passenger seat. What makes us anxious? What makes us scared? Jesus, may we, may we have a conversation with you about what kind of passenger are we? Because here's the deal. Jesus, in your presence, you've got something better for us than being an anxious, scared, controlling, fearful passenger. You have got some beautiful landscape for us to see. You have got a whole new way to get to the south side of town if we need to. 
Or maybe you want us to sit in traffic for a little while. And so Jesus, may we be good passengers with you. May we sit and surrender and enjoy the full presence of God found only in you. In Christ's name I pray, amen.